Welcome to you uh, to, we're going to call this morning, The End of the End, because we've been in this series called The End uh, for three weeks before last week, and a couple, a couple weeks ago, I started a survey of the book of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant, John. And originally I said, we're going to do uh, the, the entire book of Revelation in 30 minutes. Well, we didn't quite get that done. So that was part one. Welcome back to the Revelation part two uh, for this morning. Uh, I hope that you'll stick with us all the way through this. If uh, you, know, you got enough last time, stick with me one more time. We'll move on to something else next week, all right? Now, I've said that the, the book of the Revelation is all about Jesus and that we study it in order to take it to heart or to respond in obedience to the book. So keep that in mind. As we go through the rest of the book of the Revelation today, talk about some of the things that are there, not every word, of course. Uh, keep that in mind that we, we read it, we read it out loud, we study it, we think about it in order to take it to heart or to respond in obedience. When speaking about the end of the world as we know it, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6. He said, so then let us not be like others. Let's not be like other people who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. What he's saying there is act like you know what's going on, act like you know what's about to happen, act like, and be prepared for the fact that this world is coming to an end. And even if it doesn't come to an end during your lifetime, your life is going to come to an end. The apostle Peter put it like this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11. He said, since everything will be destroyed in this way, and he just talked about how that uh, the universe is gonna go out of existence. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? All right, how, we, we know that this, everything is coming to an end, so how should that motivate us? How should that change our lives? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Verse 12 says, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. If you believe that there's an all-powerful God who created the universe, how does that affect your life? Seems like it should have a pretty big effect. If you believe that we will all be judged one day for how we live our lives, how would that change the way you live your life? That's what the book of the Revelation is all about. Jesus' half-brother, James, wrote in his book, James chapter 1 and verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's foolish just to listen and then disregard. Go ahead and uh, do what the, what the Bible tells you to do. Do what God tells you to do, what Jesus tells you to do. Do what we read in Paul and Peter and some of these other authors. So let's do a quick survey of the rest of the book of the Revelation and see Jesus in it. That's the way we started. Let's do it with the idea of the fact that whatever we learn should change our lives. Uh, let's be thinking about what, what, what should this make me want to do? Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that in Revelation chapter one through three, Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He was before the creation, He's already at the end of the creation. We have nothing to worry about uh, because he is in control. And then we learned in Revelation chapter four and five that Jesus is the lamb 
of God. He died to take away the sin of the world, and he has the authority to open this, this scroll, this seven-sealed scroll that the book of Revelation is all about. And when he starts releasing the, the seals on the scroll, we begin to see the punishment on, of the earth in the end time. So let's move on. Jesus in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters 6 through 18, that's the heart of it, the most of it. Jesus is the righteous judge in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. These are the chapters where all the bad stuff is revealed. You know, these are the chapters where people say, what's that talking about? You know, all the, the seven heads and the ten horns and all that kind of stuff. While Jesus is the Lamb of God who gave himself to die for the sins of the world, he is also the judge who brings judgment against all who have rejected him. Uh, you know how everybody wants to know why God doesn't do away with all the bad stuff? Why doesn't God do away with all the, the hurt? Why doesn't God do with, away with all the crime? Why doesn't God do away with all the evil in the world? Well, this is where he does it. All these terrible things in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, all who are found guilty will pay the price because the righteous judge always gets it right. You may stand before a judge that doesn't get it right. You may stand before a jury that doesn't get it right, but the ju righteous judge always gets it right. Now, as we think about the book of, of the Revelation, Revelation chapter six, Jesus opens the first six of the seven seals. There's a scroll, it's got seven seals on it. When the seventh one is finally opened, it really starts to roll out. The first four seals are horses and horsemen, or the four horsemen, of the apocalypse. All, we've all heard of that, right? There's the white horse, which probably represents Antichrist, who comes imitating Christ and probably speaks about the beginning of this terrible time called the Great Tribulation. If you studied uh, end time stuff in scripture, uh, talks about seven years or a week of years of, of tribulation. But these chapters only talk about the last part of that, that last three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. And when you read the book of Revelation, you'll read about three and a half, you'll read about 42 months, which is three and a half years of months. You'll read about 1,260 days, which is three and a half, three and a half months, uh, three and a half years of days, if you have 30-day months, by the way. So the white horse comes He's followed by the fiery red horse of war and the black horse of famine and the pale green horse whose rider's name is death and hell or Hades follows right behind him. And the four horsemen bring the death of about one fourth of the earth's population. When the fifth seal is opened, the martyred saints of God uh, cry out for beneath the throne of God and they say, how long, how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? That, that, the word that's translated sovereign Lord means absolute ruler. And so the, the, the souls of those who have given their lives for Christ are crying out and they're saying, you can do anything. When are you going to do it? When are you going to bring an end to all this kind of stuff? When the sixth seal is opened, uh, it announces the great day of God's wrath has come. And then chapter seven of the book of Revelation introduces us to a couple of groups. I'm just gonna mention them quickly because the 144,000 come up in some people's theology and the 144,000 are Israelites that God stays with and preserves through the great tribulation period. And then there's an innumerable host of people from every language, every tribe, 
every nation that has ever existed, there will be people uh, that don't have to go through the great tribulation because they belong to God. In Revelation chapter 8, Jesus opens the seventh seal of this great book. And the opening of that seal brings the seven trumpet judgments. Now, I'm not going to go through all those, but the first four trumpets are natural and they seem like ecological disaster. And the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments are more spiritual. But here's the thing that's significant. No matter what punishment, no matter what wrath God brings on the earth, people react in the same way. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 reads like this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hand. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Verse 21 says, neither did they repent of their murders, their magical arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. People just refuse to acknowledge that God is in control. The seventh trumpet uh, is sounded by the angel in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Once that's sounded, you know, every time you hit a seven in the book of Revelation, you kind of take a break and you, you, you see some things. Once that's sounded, we get a description of God's throne in heaven and a description of the, the battle between good and evil from the beginning. Satan is mentioned and God, Jesus is mentioned and Israel is mentioned in typical form. And then we get to the seventh trumpet and the Antichrist. In Revelation chapter 13, this guy named that we call the Antichrist, as, who is a one world leader who's given uh, great power over the earth for three and a half years. He's not completely successful, but he tries to unite the entire world under his control. He sets himself up in the temple of God in Jerusalem and proclaims himself to be God. So we know the temple gets built again. So we are introduced to this guy, just called a beast but he is this one we call the Antichrist. Then there's a second beast called the false prophet. He's the religious leader for the Antichrist. He's all, also introduced to us in Revelation chapter 13. And he's the guy that leads the religion that worships uh, the Antichrist and gets everybody to worship Antichrist. And there are techniques that they use, but the technique you've heard about, I bet everybody has heard about something called the mark of the beast. Have you ever heard of that? The mark of the beast. That comes up in this chapter, so let me just read that to you since you already know about it anyway. Revelation 13, verse 16 says, it, that is this beast, this false prophet, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. So that, here's the reason they got the mark, verse 17, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so in order to force everybody to worship this beast, you have to take this mark, which is a commitment to him. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number of man is six, by the way. That number is six, 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 which a lot of people think is uh, the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Now, I wouldn't worry too much. I've got a, I have a, uh, a debit card and it's got the number 666 on it. I don't worry about that too much. You know. yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't worry about it. Some people, you know, they wouldn't have a, a house number or anything that's got 666. Don't worry about that. You know, that's not big stuff to worry about. We don't know exactly what's happened 
what will happen. And if you're already a Christian, you don't have to worry about taking the mark of the beast because you can't, it wouldn't take on you anyway. And you're probably not going to be around whenever uh, it's given out. But we can understand how that happened now. I mean, uh, it's really, the technology is real easy now to implant a little chip in a person so that you recognize every place you go. You can't go into a store or buy anything or do anything unless that chip is recognized. And that's evidently something that's going to happen. We couldn't understand it, you know, uh, uh, 20 years ago or 50 years ago and before. Nobody could understand how that's possible, but it's very, very possible. Well, after the seventh trumpet uh, sounds, there are seven more judgments that are called the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Twice in connection with these judgments, God says that people did not repent of their actions or turn to God. And ultimately, these final judgments will lead to the defeat of the armies of the earth at a place called Armageddon. In describing the spirits that come out of bowl number six, uh, Jesus states this, Revelation 16, 14, they are demonic spirits that perform signs. They go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So as the sixth bowl is poured out, these demon spirits go out and gather together the armies of the earth coming together to this place uh, in Israel that's called Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16, verse 16 says, then they, are then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And finally, in Revelation 16 and verse 17, Jesus says this, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne crying, it is done, it is done. We had seven seals, we had seven trumpets, we have seven bowls that are poured out and that's it. The wrath of God has been poured out and if you read chapter 17 and 18, you find God's uh, judgment on religious and political Babylon which is always uh, represented opposition to God both in Old Testament and New Testament. God's judgment against sin, uh, and I'm not, you know, obviously we can't get deeply into any of that stuff, but God's judgment of sin may seem harsh uh, in our culture where we don't want to be hard on anybody, but we all call for harshness in some things, don't we? When we are really hurt or we some, see somebody that's really hurt or somebody that we love is really hurt, we want somebody to pay the price or we want God to eliminate all evil. Well, this is what God has to do to eliminate all evil. This is what is necessary. And I want you to keep this in mind. It's a thought that passes through my mind many times every week. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, John said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Uh, you and I were full of something, but it's not always grace and truth, right? How is it possible to be full of grace and truth at the same time? Because grace uh, is forgiveness, Grace is giving you good stuff that you don't deserve. And truth says this is right and that's wrong. How is it possible to be full of grace and truth? We struggle with that as human beings. We, we want to love everybody and we should love everybody. And, but we want to stand up for what's right and we should, should stand up for what is right. And so we struggle with being full of grace and truth, but not Jesus because he is by his nature full of grace and truth, full of grace uh, full of love, but also the righteous judge of the universe. And that leads us to the second thing I want to mention to you today, which is the fourth 
part of the book of the Revelation, Revelation chapters 19 and 20, after Jesus is the righteous judge, he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. These chapters, these two chapters are about Christ's return to the earth with his saints. And they begin with this victory song, Revelation 19, verses one and two. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God for true and just are his judgments. I'm sure there's a lot of songs that have been written taking off from those two verses. A little bit later, John describes what it's like when Jesus comes back with his saints, with his angels to this earth. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. Good guys always ride white horses and wear white hats. Uh, Antichrist tried it a little bit earlier, right? Because he wanted to look like a good guy. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. He doesn't give anybody anything more than they deserve. Verse 12, his eyes were like blazing fire and on his head many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Of course, Jesus shed all of his blood for our sins. And his name is the Word of God. John said in John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in that same chapter, he says, and the Word became flesh and, we, and dwelt among us. And we know that he's talking about Jesus, and this is Jesus. Verse 14 says, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And finally in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Antichrist, the false prophet, the armies of the world are gathered together at Armageddon. The armies are destroyed uh, by the coming of Jesus. The, the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast alive into the sea of, that's burning with fire and sulfur. Satan is thrown into the abyss for a thousand years while Jesus rules in peace on earth. It, it's what we all hope for. If you wanted, how would we like the, the world to be? It would be just like it is when Jesus comes back and judges sin and casts Satan into the pit for a thousand years and gets rid of the Antichrist and gets rid of this false religious leader uh, and destroys the armies that oppose him. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Everybody gets along with each other. Animals and people get along with each other. We're all vegetarians, uh, evidently during that period of time. But then, after a thousand years, Satan is released from the abyss. The armies of the earth immediately rally to him against God. They still haven't repented of their sins. They just got along. And they are destroyed by Jesus one last time, and Satan is cast into the lake, the sea that burns with fire and sulfur. The last glimpse we have of those who reject Christ is seen at, at this judgment that we've already talked about, so I'm not gonna get into it again, called the Great White Throne Judgment, where all who did not receive Christ as their Savior, all whose names are not written in the book of life, are judged by their works for how they're gonna suffer 
but if their name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, that's what makes the difference between heaven and hell. They go eternally into this place known as the sea of fire. Jesus is the righteous judge in Revelation 6 through 18. Jesus is the king of kings in Revelation 19 and 20. And finally, the last two chapters of the last book in scripture, Jesus is the bridegroom in Revelation 21 and 22. Throughout eternity, Jesus and all believers will live together in an environment we can't imagine. We're gonna read a little bit, but we can't imagine what this is going to be like. Uh, we're gonna have relationships that we can't imagine. Uh, when Jesus comes and he's our savior and he's the, the groom, we're the bride and we live together forever with him. We can't even imagine. Uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, how much we love each other. And I think we're gonna know each other in heaven. But we can't understand that, that the relationships of heaven are so far above these things that, are, that, that we would die for on this planet, that everything will be even better. Revelation chapter 21 begins like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea, no oceans. <clears throat> Verse two, I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He's gonna live with us. We will live with him. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Wow, that's what we look forward to, right? I love, I love being alive. I love doing things with Gene. I love my grandkids and my sons and my daughters-in-law. I love you and doing things with you and going places and, and having fun. I love being here on a Sunday morning. But there are things I hate about this place that we live. There are things I'd like to get away from uh, on this place, the sorrow, the crying, the death. Uh, the pain that people experience as a result of that. And one day, that's all going away. There's a description of this holy city, New Jerusalem, that comes down from God out of heaven. The physical description talks about, uh, you know, streets of gold and gates of pearl and so forth, but it must be symbolic, describing uh, the most beautiful place, and I can't say that you can imagine because you can't imagine it. It's beyond imagination. We have this streets of gold, gates of pearl. That doesn't sound all that great to me. But, but it's a description of this fabulous place that will be better than you can possibly imagine. Perhaps the most significant statements that Jesus makes about this place are in Revelation 21, 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No temple, no church building needed. Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is the lamp. God is the light. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring splendor 
into it. Verse 25, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. No need to sleep. Verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And finally, verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are in, written in the Lamb's book of life. The phrase book of life is used multiple times in the book of the Revelation, but this is the only place where it's called the Lamb's book of life. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you have trusted him as your Savior and he has taken away your sin, your name goes in the Lamb's book of life. Well, a few closing thoughts about this last chapter of the last book of Scripture. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. In Revelation 1, there was a blessing pronounced on those uh, who would read this book aloud and study this book and apply this book. Revelation 22 says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I'm coming back soon. There's a blessing on you if you keep the words of the prophecy of this scroll. What does that mean, keep the words of the prophecy of this scroll? I got to put some crowns on my head, get some extra heads and, you know, look like one of these beasts or something. No, it means that we live our lives as though God is real. It means that we live our lives as though Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture. It means we live our lives as though one day we're going to stand before the judge. And you can't, there, you know, there's no loopholes before this judge. Uh, there's no hiring the best lawyer in town for this judge. One day we're going to stand before the judge. That's what it means. It means to live our lives without fear. Because God is in control, and once we give ourselves to him, once we trust him uh, with our souls, with our lives, once we realize that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of our sin, once we realize there's nothing we can do uh, on our own we, uh, to, to make ourselves better, to be good enough for God, means we can live our lives without fear. Jesus' final words begin in verse 12, like this. Revelation 22, 12, look. I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to each person according to what they have done. Now you go to heaven because your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life and it gets there because you trust Jesus as your Savior. And you go to hell because you reject Christ. But you still give an account for the way you lived that life while you were here on this earth. Jesus' final invitation is found in verses 16 and 17. Revelation 22, 16, I, Jesus, has sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Everything is through the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star, verse 17. Here's the invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Never says, get out of here, we don't need you. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the gift, free gift of the water, of life. Come, come. You're invited to come. Revelation 22, 20, Jesus' final promise. He says this, he who testifies to these things says, Jesus says, yes, I am coming. And that's the final promise God makes in scripture. Yes, yes, I am coming soon. And here's our response. Even though we enjoy a lot about this earth, I do, you do. 
the only home we've ever known, the only home we can imagine is this place. We sometimes grow tired and we can respond honestly the way that John responded. In Revelation 22, verse 20, John said, amen. That's true. He said, I'm coming back soon. And John said, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Until he comes, however, we have, we have his presence with us and we have his grace. In verse 21, John finishes the entire Bible with this phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen, for it is true. His grace refers to him giving us good when we don't deserve it. And we never truly deserve it. It's not because we're so good. His grace is all about the fact that we're not so good. We go to heaven even though we should go to hell. We go to heaven because he loves us and he bestows his grace on us and we trust in him. And every day, though we don't deserve anything from him, he gives us good things so that we can live the life he wants us to live. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. The main way we respond to God's grace, and I want you to be thinking about that as we close this morning. The main way we respond to God's grace is by extending it to others. God is good to us, and we're good to others. That's what living the Christian life is all about. Hopefully, we do that every day in many ways. One of our concerted efforts, that is one of the efforts that we all do together, is through a ministry of our church called Embrace Grace. Embrace Grace is our ministry to prospective mothers in crisis and thereby to prospective babies in crisis, the babies who might be aborted and not be allowed to live on this planet. We stand as a people and as a church for preserving the life of the unborn. And sometimes we as Christians in general, not necessarily us as a church, but we, we as Christians in, in general are, are uh, criticized because we, we throw out great sounding platitudes, but we don't do anything about it. We tell people you need to do the right thing, but we don't help them do the right thing. And that's what Embrace Grace is all about. It's all about helping moms in crisis do the right thing, helping them carry their baby until it's born, helping them adopt that baby out if that's what is necessary, helping them keep that baby if that's what they want to do. And uh, our, our semester is coming to a close in Embrace Grace, and it's time for the baby shower uh, where, you, where we give gifts to the the three ladies, this year, three ladies that are involved in Embrace Grace, where we give gifts to three ladies that are involved in Embrace Grace. Some of the major gifts have already been purchased, uh, but we still need your help. We need everybody cooperating together, uh, buying gifts for these young women. Or Jean said, if you just want to give her money, she'll go buy your gift for you. You know, if it's easier just to give money than it is to give a gift. But as we think about today, as we come to the close of this, this thing about the end, for us, as we live between now and the time of our end, it's all about extending to others the grace that God has given us. So if you're curious about this embrace grace thing, you have a question about it, or you're interested 
in helping. Cassie's going to be standing at the door as you go out today. She has a flyer that she can give you. If you have a question you want uh, to ask her, you can do that. You ladies will be invited to the baby shower when it comes. Now, those of you who went to the first one may not have wanted to come back to another one because uh, we didn't know for sure how to handle it, and it drug out for hours. But she's got it under control now. You can come and have a good time with these young women that you're helping to support, and I would encourage you to do that. So would you consider the grace of God? Would you consider uh, stopping and asking Cassie a question or taking a flyer from her when she stands at the door in the back? I'm going to pray. We'll be dismissed after I pray, but I want you to take that home with you and take the message home with you that we study about the end time and we believe that it's true, it should make a change in our lives, the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. Stand up. Let's, let's all stand together and, and pray. Father in heaven, I know you're here with us, and I thank you for that. You've been good to us in every way. I, I don't understand sometimes why you're so good to me, why you do so many good things in my life and the life of our family and the life of our church, but you do. Give us the grace to realize how you've forgiven us. Give us the grace to realize how you've given to us. Give us the grace to understand that it's not because we're so great that we have stuff, it's because you're so good. Please grant us the grace sharing with those less fortunate. In Jesus' name.